Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for March 2023, where our panel of palliative care experts keep you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our hosts, Dr. Jose Pereira and Dr. Leonie Herx, join us for the seventh episode of the Palliative Care Journal Watch. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care ECHO Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care ECHO Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Hello and welcome to our seventh episode of the Pallium Canada Echo Journal Watch. It's hard to believe that we're really at episode seven. Those of you who have missed the previous ones, you can find them on the Pallium Canada Echo website. So just a little bit of an introduction to the Journal Watch. For those who've never joined us before, we are a group of faculty members in the divisions of palliative care at McMaster University and at Queen's University. And there's a team of about 16 of us, and we monitor about 12 journals regularly, and we identify papers that we think are useful to take a closer look at. We look for papers that we think can either change our thinking on various aspects related to palliative care or can confirm thoughts that we have around some of our clinical practices, education, service development, etc. The Palliative Echo Journal Watch program is a five-year national initiative to cultivate communities of practice, and that's specifically the Palliative Care Echo Project. And this Journal Watch is part of that project. It's a project that looks at providing continuous professional development opportunities for healthcare providers across Canada. And I'm happy to say we have a lot of people joining us, both in the Journal Watches and also in the other Echo products from across the world. And the the project is supported by a financial contribution from Health Canada. So what do we expect from today's session? Well, today we're presenting five articles. In the past few episodes, we've been presenting four. I must say we're finding some fantastic papers, so it's becoming difficult to choose only four. We'll try to get through five today, and we hope there's opportunities for discussions now. I am Jose Pereira, and I'm Professor of Palliative Care in the Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. Um, I'm also Scientific Officer and Co-Founder of Pallium Canada, and I happen to be doing a sabbatical now. So I'm actually zooming in from the University of Navarra up in Pamplona in Spain. And with me is my colleague, Leone. Leone, over to you. Thanks. Yes, Leone Herx. I'm Associate Professor and Division Chair of Palliative Medicine at Queen's University. Perfect. Now, we often have a panel of three or four people. Today, it's Leone and myself. I think as workloads have been increasing, people are very busy, and we understand that. And so today, you'll have the two of us, and I'm sure in the next episodes, you'll have some of the other faces from the different teams that monitor the journals. Some quick disclosures, Pallium Canada is a non 
not-for-profit organization. Over the years, it's been funded mainly by Health Canada. It has also received over the years uh, funding from family foundations, such as the Patrick uh, Gillen Family Trust, as well as the Lee Kashing Foundation and the Canadian Medical Association. It has received some funding from Beringer Ingelheim, but largely for the dissemination of the Leap Lung courses. And a lot of the funding that goes into Pallium Canada's different activities comes from revenues of the LEAP courses through registration fees and license fees. I do receive a remuneration from Pallium Canada as scientific advisor, and Leone has no conflicts of interest to declare. Now, today, as I said, we've got five articles, and there's quite a range of articles, and they range from LVAT, so left ventricular assist devices, to the response by primary care during the COVID pandemic. We have a fantastic randomized controlled trial about a cannabidiol oil, so CBD, and its impact in palliative care. And we also have a paper around adolescence. So let's get right into it. And the first paper will be presented by Leone. Thank you. This is a paper that was recently published in Healthcare Quarterly by the team from Sunnybrook in Toronto, and it's looking at factors that delay transfers from acute care to a local palliative care unit. So by background, really, I think we all know that there's significant capacity pressures on acute care resources in Canada, and, and there's an urgent need to really look at where we're delivering end-of-life care in alternative settings, such as palliative care units and hospice residences. And we know that most patients wish to avoid death in hospital. So it's important that we better understand factors that might impact transfer from acute care to a person's preferred location for end-of-life care and realign system processes that allow for that safe and timely transfer. We also know that effective transfer and reduced utilization of acute care beds reduces overall healthcare costs and other important consideration. So the aim of this study was to identify factors that delayed local patient transfers from an acute care site to a palliative care unit in an adjacent hospital site to really look at what system level opportunities there were to improve operational processes and the delivery of high quality palliative care. This was a retrospective chart review on all patients during a designated study period who either died in acute care or were transferred to the hospital's palliative care unit following an inpatient palliative care consultation by the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre palliative care team. For those who died in acute care, they looked at factors that prevented a transfer to PCU. And for those who died at the PCU, they looked at factors that might have delayed the transfer to PCU. They did exclude those who received a palliative care consult who would discharge to another location such as home or hospice or an alternative PCU. And just by way of background, I thought this was interesting and may inform some of our discussion later. Sunnybrook Health Sciences is a 638-bed tertiary care hospital in Toronto that has an associated 56-bed PCU that's in an adjacent veterans care facility. And the purpose of this PCU is to provide end-of-life care for patients with a comfort focus of care and a prognosis of less than three months. Notably, most admissions to the PCU are direct transfers from the acute care sites at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. So they did a chart review of 130 patients over an 11-week period from March to May 2021. During, uh, for those 130 patients, 31% of the patients died in acute care and 69% were transferred to the PCU. Of those who died in acute care, about 40% died because they were receiving active medical management until the time of death. 20% were not considered for transfer to PCU because they were thought to be imminently dying. 15% died while they were still deliberating whether they should go home or go to PCU. And about 12.5% died before a bed became available on the PCU. There was also 10% who were awaiting maid in acute care and one patient, 2.5%, who preferred to remain in acute care despite having comfort goals of care. 
Of the 69% who were transferred to the PCU, over about two-thirds of them had same-day transfer. 16.6% had a next-day application submitted and transferred to the PCU, and 17.7% had a delay of transfer greater than 24 hours after it was determined they were appropriate for PCU. So the factors that contributed to the delay in PCU transfer, it was about just over a third of them were continuing to deliberate disposition, similar to those who had died awaiting acute care, not sure whether they should go to the PCU home or hospice. Some were medical barriers where they, for example, were awaiting like a peritoneal drain placement or the requirement of a negative pressure room for infection control purposes that was not available in the PCU. And some of them had behavioral changes such as agitated delirium that required a higher level of supervision than could be provided at the PCU. During this time, of COVID-19 visitor restrictions, there was also some concern and hesitancy from families about the restriction of visitors in the PCU and that affected delay and transfer of about 12.5%. So overall, I think the main message of the study was really to show that there might be some modifiable factors that could be addressed through QI interventions that prevent the total transfer or delay transfer from acute care to a local PCU with the focus on four barriers. The first was disposition planning. They suggested that about 10% overall of patients who either died in acute care or had the delayed transfer potentially could benefit from transfer to the PCU as an intermediary step while they continue to deliberate their final disposition location. A number of folks had imminent risk of death, and it was discussed that even people who are imminently dying could still be transferred and may have benefit from going to a PCU, even if only hours or days of life, because their care needs may be better met there and families get different types of supports in a PCU than they do on the acute care side. For behavioral issues and medical barriers, they thought there might be ways to optimize the management of agitated delirium so that they could be more readily transferred and transferred earlier to a palliative care unit. And some of the medical barriers, such as the peritoneal catheter placements could actually be done on site in the PCU rather than delaying the transfer because it needed to be done at the acute care site. And then of course the pandemic related visitor restrictions should improve as they have with lifting of restrictions. So overall, it gives us an opportunity to look at what barriers in this local context at Sunnybrook might have delayed or prevented transfer to a PCU and look at how we might optimize end-of-life care in a timely manner and in the optimal setting. So I think the strengths are that it was a Canadian article. It was written by an experienced interdisciplinary healthcare team. It did a systematic chart review over a three-month period with a good number of cases reviewed of 130, and they did thematic content analysis. Limitations is that it was an urban tertiary healthcare center with a large affiliated end of life palliative care unit. It was retrospective chart review, of course, and it was during the height of the third wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, which had other factors that might have complicated matters such as staffing shortages that were not taken into account. Jose, what are your thoughts? Very interesting. When this paper first landed on our desk in the editorial team, I was reminded of a study that Christopher Kling and I and a team of people, including some colleagues in Toronto, did in 2015, 2016. And we went across Ontario to try and understand, well, first of all, how many palliative care units there were and what their profiles were. And I think we've got to sometimes stop and understand that a palliative care unit is not the same thing all the time. It looks differently in different places. And in essence, we discovered three profiles. The first profile is the acute palliative care unit, a unit where patients across the illness trajectory, so not just patients at the very end of life, can be admitted to symptom management and obviously also to address other acute or complex palliative care needs. But it's not limited to patients at the very end of life, number one. Uh, number two is patients can still be on disease-modifying treatments. Number three, the alive discharge rate is high, so 30, 40, 50% or more. So some units across the country that look more like that are units, for example, the Foothills Hospital in Calgary, 
Library, the Paddock Care Unit in Edmonton, Princess Margaret Paddock Care Unit. Then the other profile of units where patients within hospitals who are at the very end of life get transferred to die in that unit. As I refer to that as the end of life unit. So not always necessarily the most complex cases. I have mixed feelings about those because my feeling is that if you've got an end of life unit where anyone is dying then gets transferred to it, I think that there could be an erosion of palliative care across all the other services in the hospital. And I don't think that that's the best utilization of special expertise in palliative care. And then there's a third profile. And the third profile is what I refer to as continuing palliative care or longer term palliative care. So patients who have got more chronic illnesses, can't be cared for in hospices, most of them are end of life. So I think in this case, this seems to be a combination of an acute unit and a longer continuing care unit. What your thoughts were on when you read the paper? Yeah, I got the sense from the paper that it was an end-of-life care unit in the veterans care facility. So that was one of the barriers that made patients have to stay over at the acute care site because they couldn't provide some of those more complex level interventions like placement of the peritoneal drain catheter, even if it was for comfort-focused goals of care. So it was definitely more like a hospice in hospitals that I understood. There's a couple of questions in the chat. One question looks at how to explain same-day transfer of 65%. I was actually quite shocked. I thought that was quite high. Same, yeah, that is very yeah, high. Often we have wait lists, right, to get people to PCU beds and hospices. And then someone's curious if other areas have a closed PCU. I'm not sure if she means admission is only by a palliative team seeing the person and determining they're appropriate, if that's what you mean by closed PCU. But I think that in general, I think is usually a best approach that a person from a palliative care team has seen and assessed the person and determined that their needs are best met and can be met in that setting of care. So I actually would advocate that that should be a standard of care before people are right. transferred to hospice or PCUs. What are your totally thoughts, Jose? Yeah. I totally agree. And there should be very well-defined, uh, clear criteria of admission as well as discharge. And I think one should keep to that. By the way, I really like what the palliative care unit in Calgary has done I remember opening that unit way back in 2001. And then, Leonie, I know that you're also the medical director a few years after I left. The name was changed from the acute palliative care unit to intensive or tertiary palliative care unit, which to me makes a lot of sense because it really stresses its role. And I think it should be closed, as you say. Good. Well, then let's move on. Thanks for those questions. On to the next. And this is a paper that I found in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And it's a tighten up your seatbelts because it's a long title. It's a phase two. The randomized placebo-controlled dose-escalating double-blind study of CPD for the relief of symptoms in advanced cancer. I love this paper. I thought it's a fantastic study. Just by way of background, cannabinoid products are increasingly being legalized for medical use across the world. We know it is already legalized in Canada, and we hear a lot about it increasingly in journals and also in the media, uh, social media and other media. Indications have included things such as the management of chronic pain, refractory childhood epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, muscle spasm, anxiety, depression. It's important to understand that cannabis contains about 500 bioactive compounds. And amongst these are the Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the THC, and then the cannabidiol or CBD. And these two work on different receptors in the brain. They've got different effects. In contrast to THC, CPD typically does not have psychoactive effects. And for that reason, it's often sought after over THC in medical use. Now, most studies today in palliative and supportive care have used 
products that have a combination to varying degrees of CPD and THC in different ratios. And there's very little evidence and very few studies looking at CPD when used alone. And so this study aimed to assess whether CBD oil, when used in conjunction with standard palliative care, reduced symptom burden in patients with advanced cancer. So as I mentioned, it's a placebo-controlled dose-escalating double-blind study. The study was undertaken across five tertiary centers in Australia. Participants were greater than 18 years of age with advanced cancer, and their Karnofsky performance scale was equal to more than 30. And the Karnofsky scale is similar to the PPS, or the Palliative Performance Scale, that is often used in palliative care. In fact, the PPS derives from the Karnofsky Performance Scale. Randomization was made to either active drug or a placebo, and the placebo was a matched placebo oil, and the treatment went on for 28 days. So what they did was they started the dose at 0.5 milliliters, which was equivalent to about 50 milligrams once a day of CPD, and then titrated every three days or so. And so the doses were anything from 50 milligrams once a day to a maximum of 200 milligrams three times a day. Now, participants were given the option of remaining on the selected dose, the one that they found most effective for further two weeks after the study. So from day 14, they could continue up until day 28. There were face-to-face -face medical assessments done at baseline. And then on days 14, which is the first cutoff period, and then day 28. In between, there were telephone follow-ups. One follow-up reason was for titration. That was every three to four days. And then there were regular follow-up schedules as well on days 7, 21, and 56. They used several outcome measures. The primary outcome was the ESAS, the Total Symptom Distress Score, which they abbreviated as T. SDS at day 14. So that basically they add up all the scores of the ESAS symptoms, the nine symptoms, and that gives you the total score. And response was defined as a decrease by more than six at day 14. There were also secondary outcomes, and these were the ESAS by symptom, in addition to the TSDS over time, patient-determined effective dose and opioid use, as well as a global impression of change, depression, anxiety, quality of life, and adverse events. And for these, they used validated tools that have been used in many other studies. What were the results? Well, interestingly, there were no significant differences between the CPD group versus the placebo group across the different primary and secondary outcomes. So there was no difference between the two groups in the unadjusted change in the total symptom distress scale from baseline to day 14. There were no difference in terms of the proportion of responders. So for placebo, there were 58.7% of patients responded or participants responded. And for the CPD, 44.8% of the participants responded. And those differences were not statistically significant. All components of the ESAS improved over time in both the groups and quality of life, depression, anxiety was the same across both groups. The median dose of participant-selected CBD was 400 milligrams per day, and there was no correlation found with the opioid dose. As I mentioned before, no detectable effect of CBD on quality of life, depression, or anxiety. And importantly, and they monitored this very closely, they looked at adverse events, and the adverse events did not differ significantly between the arms, apart from some dyspnea that was more common with CBD. Interestingly, most participants reported feeling better or much better at days 14, and that was for both the CBD and the placebo group, 53% and 65% respectively. 
The strengths of the study is the design, the use of the validated instruments, and the researchers clearly adhere to Cochrane guidance with minimal risk of bias. And according to the authors, they felt that it was correctly powered. The limitations, likely the use of pure CBD. The authors state that some may argue that some of the impact of the cannabis may be the combination with THC. So if you use a CBD-only product, you might not see all the impact as the two might be synergistic. There's also mention of a lower bioavailability of oral CBD preparations as compared with inhaled preparations. Although the authors comment that because of the median dose of CBD selected by participants was lower than that of placebo, they felt that this suggests that they were receiving clinically relevant doses. The main message of the study was CBD oil did not add value to the reduction in symptom distress provided by specialist palliative care alone in this randomized placebo controlled dose escalating double blind study. The only thoughts. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I think it's fantastic to see a randomized placebo-controlled trial in palliative care in general, but especially in this area where the use of cannabinoid products is increasing for sure. I guess it's really difficult to use THC, whether it's like a one-to-one -one ratio or THC alone because of this, the uh, psychoactive effects. It would be very difficult to do a placebo-controlled trial, uh, but it would be nice if they could at least use a mixed ratio, the one-to-one -one for a subsequent trial. I don't know if there's any, did you come across anything in the discussion where that might be a, a next consideration? What they did say was that, you know, further studies are required and they do take that exactly what you just said into consideration. So I think this is a good start and I think it's a good study and I think it starts adding to our understanding of the role of this. That's great. Good. I think if it's okay, we'll move on because we do have some other really important papers that have maybe some juicier discussions. So this one is a paper by Mohamed Abdelal and colleagues from the University of Toronto, and it's a scoping review on palliative care for adolescents and young adults with advanced illness that was published just recently in the Journal of Palliative Medicine. So by way of background, youth and young adults with advanced life-limiting illnesses are known to be an underserved, vulnerable patient population in palliative care, and a better understanding is needed regarding the different types of palliative care experiences and knowledge gaps that we have so that palliative care can be better tailored to their unique needs. So the aim of the scoping review is to really review any available literature on providing palliative and end-of-life care to adolescents and youth and young adults with advanced life-limiting illness. It was a scoping review that looked at all data sources published in the medical literature as well as gray literature, searched over a 10-year period until October 2021. They had very broad inclusion criteria looking at any papers that included adolescents and or young adults with ad advanced life-limiting illnesses, and there were no limitations concerning the location of the study, the type of illness, or the study design. So they just did a very broad review. They found 51 studies, and most of them were from the U.S., about 67%, and over two-thirds of them were retrospective chart reviews and case reports, which speaks obviously to the need for better research in this area. Another interesting finding was that the age what was described as adolescent or young adults, the age range varied widely from 10 years of age to 39 years of age and differed by country of origin and even within a country. For example, in the US, sometimes it's 15 to 39, other times it's 14 to 25, Australia 15 to 25, and UK 13 to 24. They did note some correlation with race and ethnicity and access to palliative care. That was interesting as well, but I won't have time to go into all those details, but that's certainly their factor of race that's already discriminated within healthcare also applies to palliative care. 
So with their thematic analysis, they found there are three domains about palliative care needs and experiences of AYA that resonated across the studies. The first was physical symptom burden, and they found that adolescents and young adults are more likely to experience severe refractory symptoms, including total pain. They rarely had optimal pain control despite being on high doses of opioids. They had significant psychological and social needs, with over 40 to 50% of adolescents and young adults experiencing depression and anxiety. Psychological symptoms were very common. At least 87% had at least one psychological symptom in the last month of life. And most of them had multiple psychosocial symptoms and issues that were of concern. With regards to the domain of end-of-life care, there is a high incidence of aggressive care at end-of-life defined as increased number of emergency room visits, ICU admissions, and acute care hospital admissions in the last month of life. IV chemotherapy in the last two weeks of life. And as well, those with hematological malignancies had longer hospital admissions and less palliative care involvement and higher rates of ICU deaths than other types of underlying illnesses. Those with cancer had a higher hospital bed utilization during the last six and 12 months of life with a mean stay of 32 and 40 days respectively. That in the US at least was associated with high medical expenses of over $120,000 per patient. And another interesting point about advanced care planning is that most adolescents and young adults wanted earlier goals of care and end-of-life discussions, and the vast majority, over 93%, wanted their parents involved as a substitute decision maker and wanted to die at home, but most often die in an inpatient hospital care unit. So the main message, I think, is that adolescents and young adults with advanced life-limiting illnesses have, as we know, have significant unmet palliative care needs, but in particular, have high symptom burden with complex refractory symptoms. They have multiple um, psychosocial social needs and emotional distress. They're more likely to receive intensive medical measures at the end of life resulting in poorer quality of end of life care with very late or no access to palliative care consultation before end of life. And their desire for earlier goals of care is not happening. So I think in, you know, in summary, the importance really is to look at, we have urgent action needed, including education research and international collaboration to really improve program development and age-appropriate palliative care services for adolescents and young adults, really better addressing their unique needs, including the role of parents with substitute decision-making and age-specific approaches to goals of care conversations, and perhaps adult teams who need more special age-focused training to better deliver palliative care for this unique population. So the strengths of the study was the first scoping review to examine specifically the palliative care needs of young adults and adolescents with advanced illness as a distinct group. They had broad inclusion criteria and uh, included all types of studies, including gray literature. Limitations is that there's definitely inconsistency in the definition of adolescents and young adults across healthcare systems. It makes it difficult to pull data in this way in a scoping review. They excluded non-English language studies. And of course, the majority of studies were chart reviews and case reports. So we really need some more firm evidence to research done in this area. Any thoughts, Jose? Yeah, I must say this paper challenged my thinking in terms of how I tend to categorize the patient populations. Quite a few years ago, I was involved in a study actually when I was working in Switzerland, a study by Eva Bagstrasser as part of her master's degree. And she studied in the Zurich area, palliative care for children. And in that study, for me, it was an eye-opener because apart from having, when I worked as a family physician and saw children, I don't have much experience in the pediatric world. And so for me, it was an eye-opener, but that study was for younger children. So when I saw this categorization of young, you know, the adolescents and from the age of 15, 16, up to about 25, 26, it's made me rethink the categorization because I previously just thought of pediatrics up to the age of 17 or something around there, and then you're into adults. 
And it's interesting, you know, I'm sure we're going to see more work in the future in that age group. And I wonder whether things like goals of life come to the fore, if there's a difference between, let's just say, a younger teenager versus an older teenager versus a young adult in terms of goals of life, lost opportunities when confronted with an advanced disease. That is a fantastic paper, I thought. Yeah, lots to think about and, and really does speak to the importance of developmental stages of life through young adulthood, you know, all the way up to age 40 and whether, you know, where you are in that scheme and your needs. So certainly a lot of total pain and existential suffering that needs further understanding. All right, we'll move on to the next paper. Before we move on to the next one, I just saw a fascinating question by Valerie Cooper about our previous paper, the CBD paper. And Valerie Cooper wrote, I wonder how much the patient's ability to self-titrate the medications contributed to the improvement in symptoms in both groups. Perhaps just feeling in control was the actual intervention. I think that's a very insightful comment there, Valerie. The authors don't mention that, but what they do mention, however, is that they think that next time around, they may need a, a scale that looks at the happiness scale. And that's what they mentioned. And I think you've just caught onto something here that perhaps that concept of happiness can be driven by that sense of self-control and self-titration. Okay, Leonie, over to you. Great. So this is a really interesting paper on the role and response of primary healthcare services in community end-of-life care during COVID-19 qualitative study and recommendations for primary palliative care delivery that was just published in February in the Journal of Palliative Medicine by researchers from the UK. So by way of background, the need for end-of-life care in the community increased significantly during the COVID-19 pandemic, with an increase in the number of people dying at home and in care homes. General practitioners and community nurses had to rapidly change their work practices to meet the demand to provide end-of-life care to these increased numbers of patients. But little is known about the primary care responses to this major change in place of care at end-of-life or the implications for future end-of-life care services. Increased understanding about what works in the delivery of community end-of-life care at times of increased demand is vital, including from the perspective of primary care. So the goal of this study was to gather detailed insights from the perspectives of general practitioners and community nurses on factors that enabled their delivery of community end-of-life care during the COVID-19 pandemic, and to develop recommendations from these to improve primary care delivery of end-of-life care, including during pandemics and other times of increased need. This was actually the second part of a mixed method investigation on the response of the UK primary healthcare services in the delivery of end-of-life care during COVID-19, and the first part was published in 2021 that involved a survey of 559 general practitioners and community nurses. Of those primary survey respondents, any who expressed interest in being interviewed further were invited to participate in this next qualitative study. They had 196 respondents who said they were interested, and then when they reached back out to all of those respondents, 127 did not reply to their reach out, 15 were no longer available because of incorrect email addresses, and they had 51 responses for participation. They had determined that they needed to recruit 20 to 25 interviewees to develop sufficient thematic analysis for their qualitative review. They provided up to three attempts to arrange a one-on-one -on -one interview and successfully secured eight general practitioners and 17 community nurses from across urban, inner city, and rural areas in the UK. There were three interrelated themes identified as factors that were considered critical to providing palliative care in the community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Those were partnership working, care planning, and presence. I'll just go into each theme a little bit briefly here. 
theme one, partnership working, the participants describe the impact of both an increase in number of community patients needing end-of-life care and greater complexity of needs, maximizing the capability and opportunity for professionals from primary care and specialist palliative care services to work together effectively was fundamental in addressing this. For example, having online training and education sessions enhance their skills and confidence in the primary care workforce. Virtual multidisciplinary team meetings facilitated support and role modeling from specialist palliative care providers with primary care and online communication tools allowed for effective and timely communication. For theme two, care planning at end of life, participants consistently describe the importance of planning for changes in care needs from as early as possible in a person's illness. For example, initiating earlier and more consistent conversations was associated with better advance and end of life care planning. But the time and resources for these meaningful care planning conversations in primary care was already lacking before COVID-19. And during COVID-19, staff struggled to create opportunities for care planning and manage the emotional demands of the work. Specific aspects of care planning had to be done differently during the pandemic to ensure timely access to medications and equipment for symptom management, including expanding electronic prescribing and creating new grab bags of medications that community nurses could take with them out of hours. And the long-standing issues with electronic patient records sharing and lack of accessibility between care providers of documentation systems was further exposed as a barrier to effective care during the pandemic. Theme three, the importance of physical presence of primary care professionals. Nurses expressed concern that some general practitioners were not providing home visits and they felt abandoned and unsupported in their palliative care work. The physical presence of general practitioners was considered key to effective partnership delivery of end-of-life care in the community, including multidisciplinary assessment of symptoms and possibly taking responsibility for clinical uncertainty and risk. So I think the main messages of this article is that primary health care services do have a key role to play in the delivery of community palliative and end-of-life care. There are a number of enablers and barriers to primary care provision of end-of-life care that were identified during COVID-19 that can help inform policy and system-level approaches to increase capacity and capability of primary care providers to deliver this type of care including, and the key themes again, were just integration between primary care and specialist care, which could be facilitated through virtual team meetings, online education and role modeling, the need for allocation of time and resources for care planning, especially within the role of primary care providers, effective systems to support sharing of information and unified guidance, and the physical presence of all primary care team members for success. So I think there's lots of things that we can learn from this article by understanding the rapid changes that were made to improve end-of-life care in the community, and which of these could really be used going forward to increase the current capacity and capability of primary care providers to deliver this essential type of care. So from a strengths perspective, they had participants from a range of settings, including urban, inner city, and rural areas of the UK. They had a unique focus on community end-of-life care in a primary care perspective during the pandemic. Limitations, of course, is that this study was done in the UK. Interviewees were self-selected and may not be representative of the wider workforce. And of course, only general practitioners and community nurses were interviewed. And as we know, palliative care is provided by a whole team that includes pharmacists, paramedics, different types of therapists and patients and caregivers themselves. It would be great to learn further from all of those groups. So curious, there's a lot to discuss here and we don't have a lot of time, but initial thoughts, Jose? Yeah, when I first read this paper, two things came to mind. The first one was yet another paper that highlights the importance of building both primary level palliative care and specialist level palliative care and the synergies that come out of those two 
we're seeing an increasing number of papers and as well strategic plans and calls from international experts, including international organizations like the World Health Organization, European organizations that call on both those to be built, the primary level palliative care provided by non-specialist palliative care clinicians, which we refer to as the palliative care approach and the specialist team. So again, this is an, another one. Specialist palliative care teams cannot provide for all the palliative care needs of a population, simply uh, put. The second thing that came to mind is, again, preparedness. And in some work that we're doing, we're seeing that family health teams, at least in Ontario, and primary care practices that were trained up beforehand on the palliative care approach, I think weathered the storm, as it were, easier in terms of caring for their patients than those who suddenly felt overwhelmed by having to care for patients at the end of life. I was recently involved in a two-day symposium that is organized by Health Canada and supported by the World Health Organization looking at a tool or toolkit for future pandemics. And I was staggered by the focus that went into the vaccination process and access to vaccinations, vaccination production lines. And there seemed to be little interest about the other end of the spectrum, and that is, you know, patients who end up at end of life and dying because of a pandemic. I think this paper just emphasizes how important it is as part of preparedness is to ensure that all healthcare professionals caring for patients with serious illnesses have these core competencies and skills. Yeah, I think the, the other thing I did reaffirm for me that the key themes that were enablers to success and being able to deliver the care in the community are the things that we have identified in Canada as really that integration of primary and specialist palliative care, the coaching and mentoring, and really that team integration and effective communication tools. Like it just, all those things that enabled that care are the things that we really need to prioritize and move forward in Canada as well. So I think- And there's so much variability lots. across Canada. Mm -hmm. You know, it concerns me a lot what's happening in some regions in Ontario where there is a focus on specialist palliative care, there are funding mechanisms put in place that actually incentivize the takeover and specialist-only models. So I'm hoping that these can be addressed so that we can develop a future where there is a strong primary care and specialist care base, and they're both working very closely together. Uh, Lynn Meadows out in Calgary, Lynn writes, seems that even a virtual appointment would be an important contribution to care. It reminds me of, of a cartoon I saw, I used recently in a presentation on the impact of the COVID pandemic on palliative care. And there's a picture of someone at a desk, all dressed up with a tie, looking you know, very, very smart and, and elegant and formal, and then wearing pajama pants beneath and slippers. And the title was, Virtual Care Cannot See Everything or Doesn't See Everything. You know, I think... To your point, virtual appointments can be extremely helpful, but I think, again, it's the right tool for the right need and the right situation. I think there are times where a face-to-face, -face, an in-person visit are important. We see a lot of things there that we don't see on the internet or virtually. And so I think moving forward, the big question is when do you use which one? And how do you use it most effectively? And I, but, but I think virtual care is here to stay, and it's a matter of being wise and discerning when to use it effectively. Should we move on? Yeah, let's go yeah. on to the last paper. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to the last paper. So the ball's in my court now on this one. 
This was a paper looking at how, in East Asian settings and cultures, the experience of decision-making around deciding on whether or not to proceed with a left ventricular assist device or not. And I think this is an important paper because increasingly those of us who involve in the care of patients with heart diseases are probably already observing an increased use in left ventricular assist devices or LVADs in patients with very advanced heart failure. And these are usually patients who are resistant to some of the usual heart medications, no longer tolerant to diuretics, multiple hospitalizations. Previously, we used to see LVADs being used more as a bridge to transplant. So while a patient is waiting for a transplant, they're kept alive with an LVAT. Sometimes it was used as a bridge to candidacy or still is used as a bridge to candidacy. In other words, they may not be very sure as to whether the person would qualify for an LVAT or not. Um, and so it's, it's inserted as a temporary measure while decision is made. But increasingly, we're seeing LVAT as a destination therapy. So especially in patients with very, very advanced heart disease and including patients who become inotrope dependent. Now, there is studies to show that LVADs can improve quality of life and can increase survival in well-selected patients. There's also a list of uh, contraindications to putting in LVADs, and those include comorbidities such as severe renal impairment or failure, liver failure. Now, it's often difficult for patients with advanced heart failure to receive an LVAD or not, especially if it's a destination one. And the authors of this paper quote two studies that have explored this, but both of studies were done in Western settings. And what they found was that the decision is often emotional and stressful. And what they found in the study were these two decision subgroups, as they call them, emerging. The one was an automatic subgroup, and this group made decision driven by fear of dying and would often say, yes, we'll go for it simply because of fear of dying. And then there is a reflective subgroup that was more strongly leaning towards the need to weigh the risks and benefits. But the authors make the point that little is known about the experience of decision-making around LVATs in East Asian um, settings and cultures. And interestingly, for me, they described what they say was an influence by Confucian values, such as filial piety in East Asian cultures, and where sometimes patient autonomy can be subordinate to family values and physician authority. So the aim of the study was to explore influences, concerns, and needs surrounding the decision-making of LVAT among multi-ethnic heart failure patients and caregivers in Singapore who were offered an LVAD. So it was a qualitative study. So they did interviews, um, recorded those, and then undertook thematic analyses by coding and then finding emerging themes. They invited patients with advanced heart failure who were either already on an LVAT who were being offered an LVAT to participate. So patients from May 2009 to March 2018. So this is really quite a long study. They also invited family caregivers to participate and they used a purpose of sampling approach so they can ensure diversity, age, gender, ethnicity, and religion, among others. Interestingly, bereaved caregivers were excluded. And I found that interesting because I wonder what some bereaved caregivers would think looking back. Could some of them maybe express some doubt about whether it was the right decision or not? And perhaps in the future, we could see some studies exploring what bereaved caregivers experienced. Now, interestingly, the patients and the families were interviewed separately. So there were 31 participants, at least patient participants, and there were 11 family members who participated in the study. 
It was a diverse group in terms of race. They included some patients who were Chinese, some Malay, some Indian, some Eurasian. I've never been to Singapore, but I've got a very close friend who lives there and has shared with me how heterogeneous the population of Singapore is. There's also diversity in religions. And the study included patients who were Buddhists, Taoists, Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, Muslims, and also free thinkers. And what emerged were three main areas related to decision-making, and the authors describe these as mindsets, decision-making unit, values, goals, concerns. Mindsets that shape decision-making range from having no choice to being reflective, taking a gamble, and fighting on. Many patients reported that decisions were shared with the family or the medical team, so less often done by themselves as the previous studies had been found with more Western populations. Decision-making in the study was influenced by, interestingly, current LVAT patients who acted as patient ambassadors. So what appears to be happening there are patients who are on LVATs would meet with patients who are considering placement of an LVAT and obviously had discussions with these persons referred to as patient ambassadors. The other influences were spiritual support and a desire to protect the family, life prolongation and or improving quality of life. And values that were important in this decision-making process included sanctity of life, trusting in a higher power, believing in predestination or karma, and preserving family harmony. Participants expressed concerns about cost, employment, and health comes in the study. And LVATs can be very, very expensive. I read a paper not so long ago where in the United States, for example, it can be in the order of over $300,000 for an LVAT. The strengths of the study, the multicultural exploration, the number of patients, 31 patients and 11 caregivers, that's a relatively large number for a qualitative study. In terms of limitations, there was only one patient that they were able to interview who decided not to proceed with LVAT implantation. So overwhelmingly, the participants were those who opted to go with an LVAT implantation. The main messages were that East Asian LVAT patients and caregivers had culturally specific mindsets, goals, and values and concerns around the decision-making. There are implications for the design of interventions and supportive care models. And I think the findings from this study should inform the development of culturally appropriate decision-making support tools and interventions as we move forward. Aingarin Sinaraja, one of our colleagues who identified this paper, wrote in the submission to the editorial team that he found patient ambassadors an interesting concept that I haven't heard about. What do you think? I don't think we have too much time, but I also, that was what struck me when I read the paper was about this really interesting idea about patient ambassadors to someone who has lived experience about what it's like how they might have gone through the decision-making process. I wonder if we might consider that in some other areas of medicine as well. It's a really interesting concept. I wonder if if there isn't a one-sided thing happening here because patients who opted not to go for an LVAD probably are no longer living. And maybe those who had serious complications from LVADs, because complications do occur. You know, in in one study that I saw, there's an annual rate of 10% of strokes, for example. So I wonder whether, mm-hmm. you know, what the profile was of the ambassadors and whether there's a bias there and an influence, but a fantastic paper, I think, in an area that we're seeing more and more about. So I think we'll move on in the interest of time, just to say we've got some interesting honorable mentions. So honorable mentions are papers that almost made it to be presented, and but we think 
you should be aware of and look into. And we provide you with the PubMed links that you can click onto to go and read these once you've got the webinar and its transcript. The first one is a fantastic summary on studies that looked at the impact of early palliative care on patients with incurable cancer. I recently used this paper because it summarizes the now ever-growing body around studies related to early activation of palliative care. In the other paper, again, one looked at pediatric palliative care, specifically around home-based end-of-life pediatric cancer care. There's a paper by Simery et al. examining caregiver outcomes in a intervention called CONNECT, and that's again with patients with advanced cancer. And then a fascinating one that I think we're probably going to see more and more in the future on, paper by Rulbecki and colleagues on virtual reality and neurofeedback for management of cancer symptoms. It was a feasibility study, but I'm sure we're going to be seeing more of this in the future. And with that, I'd want to thank Leone for being part of this. I'd like to thank the Pallium Canada support team, Diana and Aaliyah for their help and support. And again, a very big thank you to the Jewel Watch contributors. Thank you for joining us today. And please share this with your friends, connect them onto the Journal Watch and remind them that they can download previous episodes from the Pallium Echo website. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other palliative care ECHO project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at P-A-L-L-I-U-M dot C-A. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Diana Vince. See you soon. Music